You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Once again, it's the Throwback League. I'm your host, Josh Lewin. We're going to take you into a 5 versus 12 battle in the brackets today. The Florida Marlins of 1997, a World Series champion, taking on a 12 seed, the 1980 Kansas City Royals. Don't forget, you can check out the progress of all these games. The brackets are available on our website, throwbackleague.com. And the box scores are available, too, just in case you want to kind of follow along. Interesting one today for many reasons. Got to go way back to 1980. Kansas City Royals finally getting to a World Series. Didn't quite stick the landing, but a really interesting year for them. Our pregame analyst, John Miller, has more on that particular ball club. I always was fascinated with, with Willie Wilson because he, he was, at that time, the fastest player, at least in the American League. And when he would hit a hard ground ball past shortstop, to left center field, it was going to be a triple. And occasionally it might be a home run. He was that fast. Uh, he reached base 27 times. And I don't know if it was that was the year, but you could probably pick a year and, and it was the same idea on errors. And for me, to borrow a phrase from tennis, these were usually forced errors. The anxiety of the middle infielder, especially, especially a shortstop or a third baseman, uh, when you think about it, to get rid of the ball in a hurry because of his incredible speed. Uh, he stole bases. He was a, 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 an outstanding center fielder. And he was the igniter at the top of that lineup. And he got flack because he struck out so often and he didn't get many walks. Uh, and all of that kind of uh, came back to haunt him and the Royals in that World Series because he struck out uh, a record number of times against the Phillies that year. And, uh, and so they were able to uh, to neutralize him and win the World Series over a Kansas City team, which I thought should have won that World Series. All right, thanks, John. The 80 Royals, managed by Jim Fry, they won 97 games in the regular season. 22-year-old Clint Hurdle was supposed to be the breakout star, and he was okay. He hit 294, 10 home runs. They had two solid catchers in John Wathan and Daryl Porter. They were strong up the middle with Frank White and UL Washington. John mentioned the outfield with Wilson and Amos Otis out there with Hurdle. But the man in 1980 was George Brett, third baseman. who made a run at a 400 batting average. 390 is where it ended up, but what a fun summer watching that chase. Because we look at the major leagues here in 2020, and the drought is now at 79 years since Ted Williams hit 406 in 1941. Ted Williams came into that final day 
technically already hitting 400. He was at 39955. And his manager, Joe Cronin, suggested he sit out the final games of a doubleheader. He could preserve that 400 average, but Teddy Ballgame said, no, nah, I'm playing both games. He went six for eight. Remember the context, though. Bill Terry had hit 400 just 11 years before that. Rogers Hornsby had done it three times. Ty Cobb had done it three times. So not only was Ted Williams sure that someone would do it, he was pretty sure that he would do it, and maybe more than just once. When he was 38, this would be a 1957, he hit uh, 448 the last two months of the year, still came up 12 points short. But if his legs had worked at all, maybe Ted Williams would have done it for a second time. No one was able to do it for a first time after that. Stan Musial, 376, best he did. Joe DiMaggio, 381. Wade Boggs a couple times hit 418 and 411 at Fenway, but had to go on the road and couldn't take the green monster with him. Guys like Clemente, Mantle, Pete Rose, I mean, Willie Mays, none of them came close to 400. Rod Carew had a couple of close calls. And 1977, in fact, on the 4th of July, he was hitting 403. But soon after that, one for five in Anaheim, never got above 400 again, finished at 388. So for Brett to get to 390, that's astounding. And that's why, in large measure, he was the American League MVP. The rest of the 80 Royals, well, we talked about a decent infield, decent enough outfield. The bench wasn't much. Dave Chalk, Jamie Cork, Pete LeCock. The rotation had Dennis Leonard. Paul Splitorf, Rich Gale, and a 32-year-old lefty curveballer that kind of led the way. He'll be on the mound in this one. Larry Gura was 18-10 and 10 at a team-best ERA of 2.95. Only two Royals pitched more than 30 innings out of their bullpen, believe it or not. Marty Patton and the closer Dan Quisenberry, who was great with 33 saves. The Royals beat the Yankees in the ALCS. Then they fell to the Phillies 4-2 in the 80 World Series. The ALCS, that was a big deal for the Royals because that was the fourth time in five years they had met up with New York. Yankees had gotten them every time. 1976, Game 5, the Chris Chambliss home run, bulldozing his way around the bases through a maze of crazy Yankee fans. Next time, the Royals blew a ninth-inning lead. It ended with Freddie Patek banging into a 5-4-3 double play to end it in Kansas City. Then Goose Gossage got uh, Lecoq to fly out to left fielder Gary Thomason to cement it in 78 in the Bronx. But in 1980, they led the AL West by as many as 20 games. They won it by 14 over Billy Martin's Oakland A's. Swept the Yankees 3-0 in the best of five. Game two was the one with the drama and the controversy. Mike Ferraro trying to wave in Willie Randolph as the third base coach there. And uh, it did not go well. George Steinbrenner wanted Ferraro fired, Ben. Yeah, exactly. What else was going on in 1980? Well, first we'll switch out the music for you. Uh, if you weren't alive or you don't remember, Ronald Reagan would become U.S. president, taking over for Jimmy Carter. The miracle on ice occurred in Lake Placid, with Al Michaels asking whether or not we believed in miracles. Sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane never could catch them Duke boys on the Dukes of Hazard. Leslie Nielsen surely was serious, an airplane asking Robert Hayes to land the jet, although you should probably stop calling him Shirley. The uh, Empire Strikes Back came out. We learned whether or not Darth Vader was Luke's father. Spoiler alert, he was. Uh, for $1.18, you could get a gallon of gas, or for $9.99, you could buy yourself a Rubik's Cube. Teenage boys in 1980 fantasizing about Brooke Shields and the Blue Lagoon. Casey and the Sunshine Band ask you to please not go, uh, although if you wanted to escape... Uh, who was that guy? Rupert Holmes? 
he found a way for that to happen in the Pina Colada song that he inflicted on us. Michael Jackson wanted to rock with you, among other things, quite possibly. And uh, Billy Joel insisted it was still rock and roll to him. Let's leave it there and reveal to you the lineup for the 1980 World Series champion, Kansas City Royals. Today, dressed in their light blue road uniforms with the white script across the front. For the Royals, leading off is going to be Willie Wilson in left field. John Wathen, the catcher. Brett at third. Al McRae in center field. Clint Hurdle is in right Willie Mays Aikens at first, Frank White at second, UL Washington the shortstop, and Larry Gora is pitching batting number nine. Gora will pitch this one against the 97 Marlins and the Cuban defector Levon Hernandez. So let's get in that 97 spirit here. The Marlins had only been a team for five years, and they essentially spent their way to a title that summer and, and fall, although the Fish did not actually win the NL East. That honor went, as usual, to the Braves up in Atlanta. But they did get in as a wild card to the Marlins. 92 wins for manager Jim Leland. Darren Dalton and Craig Council both brought in around the trade deadline. The free agent signings from over the winter, like Bobby Bonilla, those were paying dividends. But let's uh, kind of fast forward here to the real story of the 97 Marlins, which is what happened after they won that first World Series. They beat Cleveland in seven. And Connie Mack had twice proven long ago you can build a championship team over time and tear it down overnight. Wayne Huizenga, the Marlins owner, did exactly that. And the greater baseball populace uh, really didn't love what was going on. H. Wayne Huizenga had conquered the world of garbage and movie rentals and had kind of parlayed that success into pro sports, too. He had a bit of a magic touch because the other teams he bought, the Dolphins, established NFL franchise winning tradition. They were doing fine. Hockey's Florida Panthers won the, or actually reached the 1996 Stanley Cup Finals in, in just their third year. So Huizinga's patience was a little bit thin when it came to the Marlins. It was an expansion team that he bought so he could book an additional 81 events a year at Pro Player Stadium, which he also owned. And the first four years, they weren't winning, and attendance was shrinking. So even after Huizinga widened payroll in 96, brought in Kevin Brown and Al Leiter, he went for broke in 97. He brought in six new free agents, Bobby Bonilla, Mo Moises Salou, Alex Fernandez came in. He anteed up for Gary Sheffield, coming off a monster season for the Marlins in 96. He re-upped with him. Brought in the first-class manager, Jim Leland, who was going from famine to feast after 11 years of dealing with tight budgets in small market Pittsburgh. In fact, his salary, $1.2 million, that was higher than any player back in Pittsburgh except Al Martin, who was at $1.5 million. Anyway, uh, once the big shopping spree was over, $89 bucks was committed to the 97 team. Money very well spent. The Marlins were 26-5 and in spring training had the 92-win season in the, the regular season. And obviously, you bring in Alou and Benia, Sheffield, all those guys, you're supposed to score runs, and they did that. Alex Fernandez led the team with 17 wins. Kevin Brown, 2.69 ERA, threw a no-hitter that year at San Francisco. Edgar Renteria drove in the winning Marlins run in the 11th inning of Game 7 on October 26th. But by Christmas, the GM, Dave Dombrowski, ordered the trade away. Olu and Jeff Conine and Brown and Rob Nan and on and on and on it went and everything must go sale. So the 98 Marlins held the usual banner raising ceremony and, and ring presentation, but more than half the roster was scattered across the majors. And Dave Dombrowski later said, I, I never thought of the 98 Marlins as a defending World Series club. Pretty sad 
and indeed the World Series champions of 97 will lose 108 games in 98. But they'll always have what happened in October 97, no doubt. Quick review of that uh, memorable October in South Florida. NLCS, they slayed those Braves four games to two. Eric Gregg's wide strike zone, the most talked about item of that series. And let's reset. Denny Nagel had just pitched a gem in game four for Atlanta. If the Marlins had lost game five, they'd be down three games to two with game six and seven back in Atlanta. But it uh, certainly went the way of the Marlins in that one. Hernandez striking out Brett McGriff on a pitch that was at least a foot outside. 15 strikeout masterpiece. And from there, they beat up on Tom Glavin in Game 6 back in Atlanta on the World Series, where Levon Hernandez beat Oral Hershiser in Game 1. Surprisingly, Chad O.J. shut the, the Marlins down in Game 2. The Indians' offense pulverized Kevin Brown. So, 1-1 series going back to snowy Cleveland in a sloppy 14-11 game went the Marlins' way in Game 3. Back and forth, series tied 3-3. Everything coming down to Game 7 in Miami. Jose Mesa couldn't close it out. And eventually in the 11th, we mentioned Renteria with the, the slider that he lined up the middle beyond the reach of Charles Nagy. A very exuberant Craig Council scampering home from third. And there you had it. 1997 pop culture-wise. Uh, well, there is some sad stuff going on. Princess Diana died in that car accident in London. Elton John wrote Candle in the Wind right after. Titanic was the big movie. There was another soul-ringing ballad in that one, My Heart Will Go On, performed by Celine Dion. But, boy, I mean, Biggie was shot. John Denver died in a plane crash. Chris Farley OD'd. Michael Hutchins passed away. Marv Albert allegedly engaged in some rough sex play that we all heard about. Eddie Murphy was caught with a transsexual prostitute in his car. So we ought to tip the scales the other way here. Let's see. Uh, South Park had taken hold of the TV conversation in some quarters. The Teletubbies were on TV for your kids. Around the Horn, Tinky Winky, Dipsy, Lala, and Poe. And let's not forget Barney the Purple Dinosaur, singing about all kinds of nonsense. The movies to watch, uh, Goodwill Hunting maybe, that was good, Contact, like that one. On the radio, uh, there was poor Brad Pitt just minding his own business, and Shania Twain's got to roll out with how that doesn't impress her much. That was a shot from out of nowhere. Uh, Leanne Rimes burst out of the scene that summer. The Spice Girls were a thing. Beanie Babies were everywhere. NBC had the top four shows on nighttime TV with ER, Friends, Seinfeld, and Veronica's Closet. See, it's all about where you hit in the batting order. If you have Mantle or Maris in front of you, you can be a replacement-level sitcom player and end up doing just fine. Speaking of batting orders, here we go. The 97 Florida Marlins... They're home here at Pro Player Stadium, a football-first open-air stadium with teal-colored seats. Renteria leads off. He's a shortstop. Jim Eisenreich is in right field. Gary Sheffield and Moises Salou follow him out. Bobby Mania's at third. Charles Johnson, the catcher. Kurt Abbott at second base instead of Luis Castillo in this one. Jeff Conine at first. And LeVon Hernandez pitching, batting number nine. Hernandez, NLCS MVP and World Series MVP. Just a remarkable ride for the Cuban defector who had defected at a tournament in Monterrey, Mexico. And you may remember the name Joe Cubas, the rather manipulative agent who funneled so many Cuban defectors in a big league baseball right around that time. Hernandez, a powerful right-hander, huge hands, throws a high 90s fastball, got a terrific slider. This year in his 17 regular season starts, 9-3, 3.18. ERA. 
Willie Wilson's in the box. We're ready to go. Batting left-handed, 326 hitter, three home runs, but 79 stolen bases. Led the league in runs and hits as the Royals won the AL West in a cakewalk in 1980. The pitch on the way, it's low. It's ball one. And the Marlins defensively. Conine at first, Abbott at second, Renteria at short, Benia's at third. Left to right in the outfield, it's Alou, Eisenreich, Sheffield. Charles Johnson is the catcher. As the pitch is ladled in for a strike, it's one and one. Right at the end of the season, the regular season of 1980, Willie Wilson got past 700 at-bats. He ended up at 705, set an AL record for singles in a season. Ended up with 100 hits from each side of the plate. Gary Templeton did that in 1979. Next pitch on the way, a strike. It's one and two. John Miller was talking earlier about how Willie Wilson started striking out a ton in the World Series, though. Struck out against Tug McGraw to end that World Series. 12 Ks and 26 World Series at-bats. Wilson was 4 for 26. Frank White was 2 for 25. So the two W's basically leading him to an L. Here's the pitch. Swung on, chop ball to first base. Easy play. There's Jeff Conine going right to the bag. One out. No score just underway. The 80 Royals at the 97 Marlins. Here's John Wathen, right-handed hitter. Playing some right field this year when Clint Hurdle doesn't, but he's catching now. 305 batter. Six homers, seven triples. As he takes outside from LeVon Hernandez, 1-0. Wathen, yeah, a catcher by trade, but he can play elsewhere, and he'll eventually have a 36-stolen base season. Even if you only catch once a week, that's remarkable. All that squatting up and down takes quite the toll on your knees. Pitch here is swung on, fouled off to the first base seats, one and one. And as for LeVon Hernandez, that NLCS game we talked about with the wide Eric Gregg strike zone, that was kind of a, a flashpoint in baseball. They started cracking down on the umpires' union soon after. They'd implement Quest Tech's umpire information system to evaluate strike zone calls. Now, Hernandez did win the NLCS Game 5. He picked up two more wins in the World Series. He was the World Series MVP, even though he had a 5.27 ERA in his two starts. Pitches in the dirt here, 2-1. and one. His first full Major League season coming up is going to be kind of disappointing. ERA of four and three quarters. You know, he threw 143 pitches in that Eric Gregg game. 142 pitches in his second World Series start. Maybe all that started adding up. Took a toll on that arm. He was eventually dealt to the Giants at the trade deadline of 99. Here's the pitch. Watson chops it on the ground to second base. And Abbott loads up, fires to first in plenty of time. Two down. All right, so they've gotten those guys out of the way, but here's George Brett, 390 hitter we mentioned here in 1980. Fewer strikeouts than home runs, 24 to 22. Power hitting third baseman, everyday player, 22 strikeouts all year. 118 runs batted in, and the lefty swings, he fouls one at home plate, nothing in one. You know, Brett actually began 1980 ice cold. 
Usually did. California kid, raised in the sunshine, never wore batting gloves. Said he wanted to feel the sting of being jammed and the thrill of hitting a baseball just right in April. But for his career, never got it done in April. And in 1980, really didn't turn it on until the end of May. Nine for his last 17 in May. Got his batting average over 300 for the first time. Takes outside here one and one. Early June, George Brett hit three homers in three days against the Yankees. And that really was what 1980 was all about for George Brett. Finally beating the Yankees. We told you three times the Royals had reached the playoffs. Three times they had been knocked out by the Bombers. Pitch is outside two and one. There was a summer-long heat wave that ended up in Kansas City in 1980. Maybe that helped George Brett a little bit. The Royals groundskeeper, George Toma, had a thermometer at Royal Stadium that would measure the temp of the, the AstroTurf, and it often registered around 140, 145 degrees. Day games, Kansas City players would submerge their feet, cleats and all, in buckets of ice water between innings. But yeah, the temperature got hot. George Brett got hot. He swings and fouls this one. That'll curl back upstairs. It's 2-2. Two and two. Go to mid-August. 28-game hitting streak on the line. George Brett faced Jim Clancy and the Blue Jays. And Brett loved hitting against Clancy. Big righty. And he would come at you straight away. George Brett liked that. He walked the first time up. Second time, rifled a single and a right. So the hit streak was at 29. Batting average 396 at that point. Swings here. Fouls it again. Right at the plate. 2-2. Two and two. Fifth inning of that game, he had a high chopper off that sizzling AstroTurf. He beat the throw, so the batting average up to 397. Fans were getting their calculators out. Got a double to the gap in right center in the seventh inning, so now he's at 399. Pitch here is again fouled, this time to the first base seats, about 20 rows back. So anyway, to the eighth inning, Mike Barlow comes on to pitch. And this is a, a soft tossing lefty, the kind of guy that usually gave George Brett big problems. Bases loaded, another double. Three runs come in, batting average of 401, and eventually up to 407. The George Brett for President bumper stickers started to show up on the back of cars. Next delivery coming. Swing, line, drive, single, base hit, right field. Brett, the wide turn, comes scrambling back. And just to finish the thought, you know, the, the run at 400 basically fizzled out in mid-September. Had a road trip to Seattle and Minnesota. That was pretty much the death knell. But settling for a 390 batting average, that's not bad. Here is Hal McCray, 34-year-old DH. 297 hitter this year, 14 home runs. Right-handed batter who will absolutely take you out on a play at the plate or at second base. And he takes inside here, ball one. McRae's son, Brian, will eventually play for these Royals. Hal McRae will manage the Royals. Will memorably throw a telephone across his office after a frustrating loss in a heated session with reporters. Tallahassee, Florida native, wearing number 11 on his back. Now the pitch. Jams him, swinging a pop-up near first base. In the foul, ground goes Conine. He's there. He makes the catch, and the side retired. No runs, one hit, one left. The 97 Marlins coming up right after the 80 Royals failed to score. Let's keep it in 1980 as we pause for this.
something you can get into right now here in 2020 may we suggest you try out our good friends at coffee bean and tea leaf the most perfectly blended coffee on either coast of the great usa since 1963 the coffee bean and tea leaf has been bringing you the finest coffees and teas from around the world with responsibly sourced ingredients handcrafted coffees and teas the coffee bean and tea leaf and experience like no other now available for a limited time we invite you to try their new horchata cold brew coffee or their world famous ice blended no score as we hit the bottom of the first inning here at Pro Player Stadium in Miami. Lawrence Cyril Gura, the left-hander from Joliet, Illinois, on the mound for the 80 Royals. It's not a perfect rotation this year for Kansas City. Rich Gale with shoulder issues, Paul Splitor, back spasms. Gura lost his last five regular season starts, but he did pitch well in the ALCS. He allowed back-to-back -back homers to Rick Cerrone and Lou Pinella. But he settled down after that, bought him the game one win. Then in the World Series, a pair of no decisions. He pitched very well in each of those games. And for that series, only eight hits allowed in 13 innings of work. He will face Edgar Renteria, 277 batter. Larry Gora, known as a Yankee killer. Five complete games against him in 79 and 80 combined, going 5-0. and And the pitch, a curveball, a strike, it's nothing in one. Renteria, the native Colombian who finished runner-up for Rookie of the Year last season, lost out to his teammate Todd Hollinsworth. Renteria, five-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion. He'll be huge for the 2010 San Francisco Giants some 13 years from now. Here's the pitch. Swing hard, hit ground ball. Frank White with the backhand. He plants, he throws, he's got him. Got the speedy Renteria. And there's one man out. Jim Eisenreich to the plate, 280 hitter this year, just a couple of home runs. Not like he's an everyday player. Devon White, John Cangelosi, Mark Kotze also seeing some time in the Marlins outfield this year. Cliff Floyd. Pitch from Gora, curveball to start him, it's low, 1-0. Jim Eisenreich has won plenty of support for the graceful way he handles his Tourette syndrome. First known big leaguer to have that issue, and he's a favorite in this clubhouse for sure. Taking here in its outside, ball two. Eisenreich among the many who will soon be gone from this 97 team. Heisinga never did get the new ballpark he was looking at. And the owner, well, kind of in a, a fit. Just decided, all right, I'm, I'm tearing things down. Here's a swing and a foul. Back to the screen, two and one. Traded or released in short order, Kevin Brown, Moises Salou, Rob Nen, Al Leiter, Dennis Cook. Original Marlins like Jeff Conine, Alex Arias. And the clearance sale was pretty much completed early in 98. The monster trade that sent five players, including Eisenreich, to L.A. for Mike Piazza and Todd Zeal. And, of course, Zeal would be moved within a couple of months. Piazza would be moved within a week. Pitch on the way. A little bloop in towards right field. Dropping down for a base hit. Jim Eisenreich is on a one-out single. That'll bring up Gary Sheffield, the dangerous, menacing 
right-handed batter who actually struggled most of this 97 season. He had the huge 96, but his 97 numbers, very pedestrian. 250 batting average right on the button. 21 homers, 71 runs batted in. Charles Johnson actually has a higher slugging percentage than Sheffield this year, which is crazy. Pitch from Gora. Off-speed swing and a miss. Nothing in one. Big cut as always for Sheffield. He's got that twitchy bat waggle. One of the great pull hitters of his generation, to be sure. It's been said that if the left field foul pole were 10 feet further left, this would be your all-time home run champion ahead of Barry Bonds. Gora in with a curve. It's low. One and one. No score. Bottom of the first inning. These Marlins have some great batting stances. You got Sheffield with the bat waggle. You've got Craig Council. It looks like he's stretching. A bat way up over his head. He's all but standing up on his tiptoes. Sheffield, though, is pure fire as he sets up. He glares out at the pitcher like the pitcher cut him off in traffic. Eisenreich the lead from first. Now the pitch. Line drive, base hit down the left field line. Gary Sheffield on his way to second. Here comes Eisenreich. Motors around third. He's heading for the plate. He will score as the throw is cut off. It's a double for Sheffield. And the Marlins jump on top. It's 1-0. Boy, one quick strike to that bat. Gary Sheffield has made it a very quick 1-0 lead here for the home team. And it brings up Moises Alou. And this is the guy that was the RBI leader for the Fish this year. 115 of them. Although usually he kind of hits down in the order. 23 home runs to go with 115 runs batted in. Takes a strike, it's nothing in one. Although we mentioned will be part of the gutting of the fish himself soon enough. And it should be pointed out that long before the Marlins strip mined this championship team, they were under an owner who never quite got the concept. We don't mean to keep bashing Heisinga here, but remember replacement players? 94 and a 95 coming out of the strike. Well, Wayne Izinga had his marketing people spend big bucks on a marketing campaign called Come See the Players Who Really Love the Game. Now, the Marlins they spent all this energy bashing the real players, and the real players returned, and the fans were asked to come out and cheer for the guys they had just been told were a pack of ingrates. Next pitch, a strike at the knees, nothing in two. Now, all due respect, but, you know, Wayne Heisinga, very successful businessman, but his businesses were built on selling things consumers couldn't keep. Trash removal, video rentals, auto rentals. That theory doesn't work in baseball. You can't haul off a championship team like trash or ask for it back like a blockbuster video cassette. 0-2 the count to Alou. Rock on the rubber, here's the pitch. Called strike three on the outside corner. Not a foot outside. It's not an Eric Gregg strike zone, I promise you. Look pretty legit. And Bobby Bonilla will come up now with a couple men out. Runner at second. Already one man in. It's a 1-0 lead for the Marlins. Bobby Bonilla, who never did warm to being a DH in Baltimore. Now he's back playing third base as a Marlin. Switch hitter batting right against Gora. Bonilla, 297 hitter this year, 17 homers, takes a called strike one at the knees. And Bonilla with that bright earring in his ear, big smile as he steps out of the box, shaking his head, he'll take a practice cut. 
For Bonilla's career, a little more than 2,000 hits, around 1,200 runs batted in. Six-time All-Star who went undrafted. Spent a semester at the New York Institute of Technology looking at a degree in computer science. But signed by the Pirates after being spotted by the legendary scout Sid Thrift at a baseball camp in Europe, of all things. Bonilla taking high, the fastball. That's ball two, two and one. Bobby Bowes rides through the Pirates farm system, came to a halt for a bit in spring training when he broke his right leg in a collision with Bip Roberts. But he made it back from that. And quite a career. Still getting paid by the New York Mets. Here's a 2-1. Swing, hot shot towards second, but right at Frank White. And the gold glover has got it. That will end the inning. One run in, though. The 97 Marlins have the lead on the 80 Royals at the end of one. One to nothing. And here in 1997, we pause for this. Everybody's swinging into McDonald's for the big summer deal in honor of Disney's big summer movie, George of the Jungle, now in theaters. They're swinging in at breakfast for two sausage McMuffins with egg for just two bucks. Morning, Bill. Mary, what could be simpler? Huh? Well, there's George. So we repeat for George, two morning fresh sausage McMuffins with egg for two bucks or two beefy quarter pounders with cheese for two bucks. Swinging back for lunch, wild animals couldn't keep me away. Well, back in Miami, you just heard Bobby Bonilla moments ago lining out to second base. We caught up with Bobby Bonilla. I keep saying we. I, I mean, I, I did. I don't really have a, a staff. I caught up with Bobby Bonilla in spring training, and uh, we reminisced a little bit about what made those 97 Marlins such a great team. You know, it really came together that, that uh, spring training. You could see the... Uh, the chemistry, because I don't think we lost a lot of games that spring. So we left with a boatload of confidence, you know. Uh, Dombrowski put together a great team. Well, we all really got along. And uh, I think it came together in spring training. Who were your go-to guys? I mean, you were the veteran when you showed up, or a veteran when you showed up. Yes. But, but, but who were your boys? Who, who were the guys that you, you'd go to war with every day? Oh, everybody on that team, from Moises to Sheffield to uh, Charles Johnson to Kurt Abbott, you name Kurt it. Abbott. I mean, what, what, I, they were all just very good friends of mine. I enjoyed the journey with them. Uh, and then Leland putting that together with Dombrowski. His coaching staff was outstanding. Uh, we just had a very good time out here. It was fun to win. And you can't fake chemistry, right? Either you got it or you don't. No, but it really, I, I, I really believe it was, it happened in spring training. We didn't, did we, we didn't lose many games. You could really say, hey, what's going on here? Because we weren't really thinking about it. So when we broke camp, we were we were all very confident. It's like, whoa, what do we have here? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, because sometimes when you put to uh, when you have a lot of uh, new faces to the organization, uh, which we did, but we had some steady faces with Conine and, and, and Charles and and so on. You don't really want to leave anybody out, but man, we really played great yeah, that spring, and you can just feel it. All right, thanks to Bobby Bowe. He's participating in a game that for now is one to nothing. His team on top. We're going to move ahead to further action. Tell you that Kansas City in the top of the third will tie it up. A two-out Willie Wilson double. John Watham will single him in but then get caught stealing to end the inning. You don't run on Charles Johnson. This game has stayed because of the great pitching. A 1-1 tie through seven. Gora all the way through seven innings. Five hits allowed. Same for LeVon Hernandez. In fact, on only 84 pitches for LeVon Hernandez. 
Jay Powell came on and pitched a scoreless eighth inning for Florida. Marty Patton on in the eighth inning for the 1980 Royals to face Sheffield, Alou, and Bonilla. Sheffield and Alou both drawing walks. So two out, nobody on. Let's get you right back to Bobby Bonilla. He's batting next. No bat lefty against his slender right-hander. Marty Patton with a big leg kick. Very Denny McLean-like with that delivery. And Bonilla, the longtime pirate, reunited with Jim Leland. That outfield back in Pittsburgh of Bonilla, Bonds, Andy Van Slyke, tough to beat that. Pitch on the way. It's in for a strike here. Nothing in one. Bonilla taking all the way after the back-to-back -back walks. You know, it's funny. Bonilla from the Bronx, Leland from Perrysburg, Ohio. You'd think they'd have nothing in common, but... You go take a look at what happened right after the Marlins eliminated Atlanta in the National League playoffs in 97. They embraced at home plate, and it's almost like you, you couldn't separate them. Two men on. Here's the 0-1 pitch. Swing high, fly ball, deep right field. Back is Clint Hurdle. He's back near the wall. He's got it right at the base of the fence. Clint Hurdle reels it in. Runners both advance, though. It'll be second and third now. And just one out in the inning. Oh, Bobby Bowe almost took it out. Charles Johnson will bat next, and it looks like they will pitch to him. 250 hitter with 19 home runs. Sack Fly can get it done here to break the tie. Johnson with the third most doubles on the team this year with 26 of them. Gold Glove catcher taking low. It's 1-0. Johnson, a local product, went to the U here in Miami for his college ball. Gold Glove winner in his rookie season. Johnny Bench did that, Carlton Fisk, and Sandy Alomar Jr. Johnson did it too. Swings here, fouls are right at the plate, one and one. This game tied one to one as we play in the last of the eighth here in Miami. Charles Johnson, a cousin of Fred McGriff, who always seemed to come up huge against these Marlins as an Atlanta Brave. And Johnson up against Marty Patton, the Illinois native who gained some fame as part of Jim Bouton's seminal autobiography, Ball Four. And it's been Ball Four twice in this inning from Patton to get into this jam. And that's unusual. Marty Patton normally very good control, only 22 walks in 90 innings or so this regular season. Runners away from second and third. And Patton, future coach at the University of Kansas, he's got the sign from Wathen. Now the 1-1. Swing high fly center field. Amos Otis back a little bit. He's still waiting on it. He's got it. Now loads and fires. No way he's going to get this runner coming in. Sheffield scores, standing up. The sack fly to make it 2-1. to 97 Marlins on top. Oh, I mentioned Johnson doubles power. And even the 19 home runs, a fly ball of any depth was going to do it there. And sure enough, it's now a 2-1 ball game. And we'll tell you, Kurt Abbott will follow here, flying out to left field. So we'll go to the ninth inning. A 2-1 lead for the Marlins. Rob Nen on to try to close it against Wathen, Brett, and McRae. 2-3-4 part of the order. Nen is a guy with 35 saves this year. 27-year-old from Los Alamitos, California. He started out as a Texas Ranger. He'll finish up as a San Francisco Giant. And it's up to him here. Starting out against Wathen. And it's ball one low. It's one ball, no strikes to get the ninth inning going. 
Rob Nen, the son of a former big leaguer, Dick Nen, played for the old Washington Senators as a left-handed hitting first baseman. He backed up Frank Howard. Next pitch on the way, fastball strike. It's one and one. Rob Nen, a one-time 32nd round draft pick. Briefly a teammate of a one-time 62nd round pick, that of course being Mike Piazza. And the Marlins, as we keep talking about, they, they moved along some talent this year and next year. Rob Nen will eventually move along too. Facing Wathen, right-hand batter, who's one of three in this one. Here's the kick, here's the pitch. Fly ball, pretty well hit left field. Sending Moises Alou back. Alou back to the warning track, and he makes the catch. So Wathen gives it a ride, but Moises Alou grabs it. George Brett to the plate. Oh, boy. Known for big clutch hits late for Kansas City. You go back to the 1980 ALCS, and Brett had the game-breaking series home run late. Yeah, the Yankees were holding on to a 2-1 lead in the seventh. Tommy John gave up a two-out double to Willie Wilson. Dick Hauser brought in Gossage, who gave up a single to UL Washington. Brett came up, hit the Gossage fastball into the upper deck. Three-run home run that just totally silenced the Yankee Stadium crowd. And the Royals had a 4-2 lead with their all-star reliever Dan Quisenberry on the mound. And everything fell into place. They finally beat the Yankees, went to the World Series. Pitch to Brett is low. It's 1-0. 2-1 lead for the 97 Marlins. Brett the tying man. You know, the Yankees actually mounted a major threat in the uh, eighth inning of that last and deciding game of the 1980 ALCS. They had the bases loaded, nobody out. The Quisenberry got Rick Cerrone to line into a double play and then a ground out to close the inning. Pitch to Brett is low, 2-0. George's older brother, Ken, made a cameo for these 1980 Royals. By 1980, everyone in baseball knew that it was all coming to an end pretty soon for Ken Brett, the pitcher. He was 31, his arm was shot, but the Royals picked him up in September largely to help little brother George mentally try to take some of the pressure off that chase for the 400 batting average. He had another Brett that could answer questions in the clubhouse. And it's funny because as George kind of faded down the stretch, Ken Brett stepped up. He pitched 13 innings in relief in September, never gave up a run. Hal McRae on deck. It's 2-0 to Brett. Here's a kick in the pitch, swinging a little roller towards second base. Tough play. Here comes Kurt Abbott throwing on the run. He got him. Kurt Abbott with a nice play. Lost his cap in the process, in on the grass to pick it up. And George Brett, who battled some hemorrhoid issues in the World Series. Well, it's Abbott, who's a pain in Brett's butt now, as he denies him of an infield hit. It's going to all be left to Hal McRae, who is 0 for 3 so far. But Hal McRae, you know, we talk about a guy that can do things on the bases. When he was first coming up, he had, he had a lot of speed. He was a burner, center fielder who could fly. But playing winter ball in Puerto Rico, he suffered multiple leg fractures sliding on the bases. He takes a fastball here from Nen for a strike. It's nothing in one. So the story goes, uh, spring training of 69, McRae going to Reds camp, his leg's still in a cast from the fracture. 
In that same offseason, Harry Carey, then of the Cardinals, had suffered multiple fractures in his leg while being struck by a car. Won't go into all of that, but anyway, Reds manager Dave Bristol noticed that Harry Carey was interviewing some ball players down on the field, still on his crutches. And Dave Bristol pointed in Harry Carey's direction and said to McCray, look at that. There's an old man, broke two legs, broke his shoulder, broke everything. And here he is walking around doing his job, doing anything he wants. Here you are, all you did was break your leg sliding into second base. You can't get out of your cast? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> As the pitch is low here to McCray, one and one. Hal McCray later sought out Harry Carey years later, said that was one of the best motivational speeches that I've ever heard. Learned that if he wanted to recover quickly, he had to start working at it. And that work ethic, that became ingrained with Hal McRae. Taking hearing us outside 2-1. and one. It's funny because as a Royal, if anybody was taking time off because of injury, Hal McRae would get on that guy big time. He'd dress like a commando, he'd hide in a trash can in the clubhouse, and he'd jump out and pretend to shoot the guy. McRae basically saying if a guy is hurt and can't play, he's dead to the club. So McRae would shoot him and pretend to kill him like you're dead to me and that would encourage a younger teammate to maybe get things going on the old rehab 1-1 pitch that's outside 2-1 the count to McRae the tying man here in the ninth inning and indeed Hal McRae he would become known as the most aggressive base runner in the game the man who would leave home plate thinking double every time he hit the ball, taking outside now, 3-1. and one. You look at Game 4 of the 1980 World Series, and twice McCray turned a seemingly routine single of center into a two-base hit. Desperately looking for a hit right now, his team down 2-1. to one. Willie Aikens on deck, the big first baseman. Nen's got the sign. Rob Nen in with the pitch. Swinging a ground ball towards short. Should be the ball game. Yes, Renteria to Abbott. Flipping for the fielder's choice, and that'll do it. Al McCray grounds out. And your final in a low-scoring battle is 2-1. Two, to one. two runs, five hits, one error for the 97 Marlins. One, five, and two for the now-eliminated 1980 Kansas City Royals. Wow. So, as we look ahead... The 97 Marlins advancing as the five seed. They'll draw the four seed eventually down the road. That's the 1999 New York Yankees. So several weeks from now, we can look forward to that one. Next up, though, in terms of what we've got for you in the throwback league, next week is an eight versus nine in this corner of the bracket. We're going to see the 88 Oakland A's up against the World Series champion 1995 Atlanta Braves. So next Monday, make sure you go ahead and Check that out. If you're already subscribing to the podcast, it'll show up just like you want it to. And we can strongly recommend to you that you do. Subscribe to the podcast. That's the easiest way to get it to your iPhone or wherever you listen to these podcasts. Go to iTunes. Go to Spotify. Leave us a nice review if you wouldn't mind. That's always a nice thing to look at and see. And uh, what else can we tell you? There's a, a Twitter account. You can interact with us at the throwback old LG, short for league. And uh, the website is up so that you can check out the box scores. You can look at who did what in this game, for example, and see what's happening in terms of the, the brackets, who's waiting for whom down the road. 
In this one, in a good pitcher's duel, Larry Gura matching up with LeVon Hernandez. The bottom of the eighth ended up swinging the deal. The Charles Johnson sack fly to make your final score. The 97 Marlins 2 and the 1980 Royals 1. This is Josh Lewin. Thanks again for the download.